Hi, thanks for listening to our sermon podcast, Second on the Mount. I'm George Anderson, minister at Second Presbyterian in Roanoke, Virginia. I do not take it for granted that people sit in the pews on Sunday morning or listen to these podcasts hoping to hear something that connects them to God, to each other, to the world. And so I spend hours seeking the right word for the right time and said in the right way. I welcome your feedback. I encourage your sharing this sermon with anyone it might benefit. And I hope you'll return to this podcast again or come visit us for worship. We'd be happy to have you. Let us pray. Holy God, if there's anything said from this pulpit that is not according to your will, let it be lost in the waves. But if there is anything that is said that is according to your will, let it find its place and let it be heard. Amen. Our scripture lesson is the second chapter of the book of Jonah. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. How shall I look again upon your holy temple? The waters closed in over me. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. As my life was ebbing away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who worship vain idols forsake their true loyalty. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. Then the Lord spoke to the fish, and it spewed Jonah out upon the dry land. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I am sure that you have seen the humorous observations making the rounds these days. Here's a few. Somewhere out there is a kid who brought home the class hamster for the weekend. Parents are not happy. Another one. Apparently, this year is being written by Stephen King. Another one. My dog looked at me and said, Now do you understand why I'm chewing the furniture? And then finally this fashion tip. Day pajamas are not to be worn after 8 p.m. As they say, I have a lot more where they came from. But should I be telling jokes in sermons? I mean, of course, most all of us have enjoyed humorous videos and emails that help relieve the stress And some actually among us are flourishing in this time of lasting Sabbath rest, finding outlets for putting off long, put-off projects and creative pursuits, enjoying the extra time with family and finding plenty of reasons to enjoy life. Buster, how's the carving coming? Wilson, are you good enough at the banjo yet to have others hear you play? 
Rachel, where did all this songwriting and painting ability come from? And how much bigger do some basements and attics seem now that they're cleaned out? But this pandemic is serious, and it's hitting some people quite hard. Many worry about its spread, about the economic impact, about jobs, making payments, worried about loved ones. And a sermon is not to entertain, but is supposed to speak some needed word of the Lord, offering wisdom, or comfort, insight, guidance. And then there is this, you've heard me say it before, though I love humor in sermons, I don't normally tell jokes. The reason that I began with these humorous observations was simply to set the context for a choice made by the writer of the book of Jonah. Jonah was written about a very painful chapter in Israel's history and was written as a way to get people laughing. The writer wants his readers to laugh, not to take their mind off things, not because it's better to laugh than to cry, not to divert them, not even to entertain them, but rather to get past their defenses and under their opinions so that maybe more light of grace can shine in on how they see the world and others around them. And so, the writer plays what if with a dark chapter of Israel's history. And we've seen the same approach with the movie made not too long ago. Quentin Tarantino made a movie with a two-word title I can't repeat from this pulpit. The movie imagines history playing out differently than it did. An odd mixture of soldiers and civilians assassinate Hitler before his regime can cause all the carnage that it eventually did. There is humor in the movie, and it plays off the fantasy of revenge. Jonah takes the same approach. The story begins with the Hebrew word, Bayehi, which means, and it came to pass. That beginning lets us know that there's a once upon a time quality to the tale about to be told. Where Jonah differs from Tarantino's movie is that the movie uses humor to feed the fantasy of revenge. Jonah uses humor to oppose the fantasy of revenge. Jonah's story takes place three centuries before the book is written. The setting is before the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel and looming large is the power of Assyria. Keep in mind what actually happened. What actually happened is that Assyria attacked the northern nation of Israel and then cruelly, through genocide and the most extreme social distancing of exiles, destroyed the identity of its tribes. They became known as the ten lost tribes of Israel. That's the setting. Well, that's what happened. Well, here's the well-known story. God calls Jonah, a prophet, to go to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, and let the people know that unless they repent of their ways, their evil ways, they will be destroyed. Well, Jonah is revulsed at the idea of this working. So instead of booking passage east to Nineveh, he books passage west to Tarshish. I need you to know that I was in the sanctuary earlier trying to figure out which was east and west, and I finally figured it out. But running away from God doesn't work. While at sea, there's such a terrible storm that the ship is on the verge of breaking apart. 
And the crew, they pray to any God that they can think of. And then Jonah offers a solution. He tells them he thinks he knows why they're in this fix and they ought to throw him overboard. Well, they do. And two surprising things happen. One is that the sea calms, the wind quits roaring. And the second surprising thing that happens is that Jonah is swallowed by what the text calls a large fish. But I'm going to stick to the story of my childhood and say, well, talk about social isolation. In the belly of the whale, Jonah has no one to see or talk to, nothing to do, nowhere to go, even to run away. And he practices a spiritual discipline he might have neglected when his life was full. He prays. And in his prayer, he reassesses his life. He remembers the past when God has been there for him. He realizes the direction that he was headed and realized that it's just not going to work out the way that he thought it would. And he gives in. He tells God, okay, I'll do it. I'll go to Nineveh. And the well then swims to the Assyrian shore and spits Jonah out. Now give Jonah credit. In the belly of the whale, he had what we might call a paradigm shift. He faces reality and he adapts to it and he changes direction. He does what he needs to do. But the story tells us that the journey is not over. It is with a bad attitude that Jonah lives his new life. After washing himself off on the shore, disinfecting himself from being in the belly of that well, he doesn't go into the center of the city where people of influence can hear him, but to the outskirts. And there in the parking lot of a 7-Eleven across from a Jiffy Lube, he mumbles what it is that God told him to say, that unless they repent, they will be destroyed. And he then quits, but his message doesn't. It becomes viral. A gospel pandemic. Some hear it, some believe it, and then spread it. His message somehow gets to the Assyrian king who believes it and repents. And the nation repents and Assyria is saved. And you would think that Jonah would be pleased with a job well done, or rather a job poorly but successfully done. But Jonah is angry at works. He lets God know it too. I knew this would happen. This was why I wanted to go to Tarshish because I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to lose your temper, full of love, and that you'd rather see bad people saved than destroyed. I'd rather die than see that happen. When God responds, God sounds like a scolding parent. Listen to yourself. Are you proud of the way you're talking? Well, then Jonah acts like a spoiled child. He storms away to where he thinks he can be by himself, plops down and pouts. God then kills a tree, shading Jonah. And Jonah lashes out at God again, this time for killing the plant. And God asks, you want me to pity the plant? When you would not pity 120,000 people? Jonah changed direction because he had to. But at the end of the story, he is yet to find joy. 
Jonah's readers are far removed from the day northern Israel fell to Assyria and southern Judah fell to Babylon. In fact, some have even returned from exile and live in the territory of Israel. And many of them have learned to live with purpose and joy. They learned to live that way in Babylon. They're living that way now. But the writer sees those who live with resentment, clinging to old grudges. And through his Jonah story, the writer encourages them to consider that maybe, maybe it's time for them to let go and to live into the future rather than cling to the past. Find some joy. Find ways to explore and embrace life in the world that you now live in with all of its limitations and possibilities. And begin this way, by opening your heart to those around you. We're in something of the belly of the well now, don't you think? Whatever it is that we are in these days, it's not the normal that we knew two months ago, nor is it the normal which we will one day arrive at. I mean, think back over the last six weeks and all the unforeseen things that we thought were going to happen suddenly not happening. I mean, I think it began to dawn on the nation as a whole with sports. I mean, with conference tournaments stopped right in the middle, with an entire NCAA tournament canceled, with professional hockey and basketball seasons brought to a screeching halt, it got everyone's attention. Then came school closings, shuttering of non-essential businesses, bans on assembly of more than 10 people, Easter services with empty sanctuaries. How many parents foresaw homeschooling their children? How many businesses were planning for a pandemic? How many thought that their family gatherings would be by Zoom? How many churches thought that their ministry would be online? We are in the belly of the well in that life that we knew is in something of a pause. It is captured right now. And we somehow already know that when we get spit out, it won't be back into the world as we knew it. And I think most all of us have accepted that. But how many of us expect that life will be as rich and as full as it was before, maybe more so? If you have a broad Uh, Facebook feed. That is, if you get Facebook posts from all directions, as I do, you can see this division already taking place. There are some sinking into blame and growing deeper in their resentments against others. And then there are those who, though they are careful, though they are worried, though they're even upset by some decisions that are being made about how some are reacting, they still, overall, they're, they're looking for, they're gathering evidence of, of people coming together to meet this challenge and of evidence of compassion and passing it on, compassion toward those who are most affected. And you see them celebrating health care providers and caregivers and everyday workers who make it possible for us to buy groceries and continue on. My personal challenge is this. Which Jonah am I going to be? There is this Jonah of acceptance, of doing what he knows that he needs to do, but stuck in a pout. And then there is the Jonah who was supposed to be, 
The Jonah who in the belly of the well prayed and made a promise that he has not yet kept. At the end of his prayer, he promised not only to do what he needed to do, but to do it with thanksgiving. Jonah's not there yet, but don't be harsh with Jonah unless you're going to be harsh with me. Because getting to joy is a journey that inevitably involves spiritual side trips into places like confusion, anxiety, fear, and pain, and grief. To be who Jonah wanted to be in his prayer, we have to help each other get there. I think it helps to take heart in role models. The writer would point to those who in exile found ways to get along with neighbors whose ancestors were their enemies, to be productive in building up the communities in which they lived, and to live with joy that often involved a lot of laughter. Or look to role models around us. We have among us those who have gone through personal transformations with very difficult chapters. Marriages broken, but then healed, or marriages ended, but then life with new love found. Jobs lost, but then going on and life becoming good again. Grieving the death of loved ones, but life somehow becoming more precious at the end of a hard day. If our aim is to be thankful again, Maybe even enough of us in this nation and world can come together that we can even craft a better new normal that we can be thankful about. I mean, can we redeem our health care system, improve it? Can we rescue or at least restore jobs? Can we find new ways for people to work? Can we grow closer as families and appreciate friends? Can we notice how clear the view is right now? How crisp and refreshing it is to breathe and then find ways to take better care of our planet? Can we learn how critical are the things that we find so easy to abandon when we're busy, but which now are so freshly important to so many of us? Prayer, worship, and showing kindness to those in need. I'm not a utopian. I'm a Calvinist. That's not very popular to say in the mainline church today. He gets a lot of grief, but I'm a Calvinist. I'm not trying to pretend that all is good or that all things will be good. I'm not, I'm only saying this. I'm saying that God is good and there is good to be found. I'm not saying we won't blow it. We will. We always do. And it's usually power and money lust and fear and resentment that get us going in the wrong direction and lead us to our worst selves. But I am saying that we have a chance to do better, to live better, and maybe become more of who God intends for us to be. We have a chance to grow more dependent on God's grace and more grateful for those who love us and those we love and even those we're supposed to love. And I know that there are going to be times to cry as well as to laugh, times to grieve as well as rejoice, but maybe Jonah reminds us that in real life, there are times to do both at the same time. 
That even in seasons of crying, we can find reasons to laugh. And even when we know that life is good and we have many reasons to give thanks, we can remember those who are suffering and who are overwhelmed and help hold them up. Let's hold each other up. And let's find that joy together. Second Presbyterian. Finding Direction by Following Jesus.